That Sober Guy podcast contains adult content, merciless truth, and emotional nudity. Listener discretion is advised. What's up? Thank you for tuning in today. Thanks to Humans for bringing us in. Thanks to you for supporting the show. I'm Shane Raymer. You're listening to That Sober Guy Podcast, and we help people stay sober. Uh, it's good to be back on the microphone this week. If this is your first time tuning in today, uh, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Uh, I've got a great show for you with today's guest, Alexis Haynes. And uh, Alexis got sober at 19 years old after facing up to six years in the correctional system uh, due to a burglary, con- a burglary conviction as a member of the notorious Bling Ring. Uh, inspired by our public journey from reality TV on E's Pretty Wild, heroin addiction to sobriety to motherhood and wellness. Uh, today, Alexis is a wife, a mother, a recovery advocate. She's also the host of the Raw and Resident podcast, Recovering from Reality. Uh, so we're going to have a good conversation today. I'm excited to have her on. Uh, we're going to get to her in just a minute. But first, be sure to check us out at thatsoberguy.com. Uh, you can connect with us on Instagram, at realthatsoberguy, and uh, on Twitter, at Shane Raymer. Now, finding the right treatment for addiction and mental health illness can be tough, and that's why we've continued to partner with Foundation's Recovery Network. Uh, Foundation stays true to their mission. Uh, They have high ethical standards, and they provide treatment in a nationwide network of residential and outpatient uh, facilities. They've built the industry's leading research and outcomes program to fulfill each commitment to the patients, and not only the patients, but uh, their loved ones as well. Uh, So if you want to learn more about foundations, you or your loved one, you have some questions, uh, you need some help, you can go to foundationshelp.com slash sober guy, or you can call 833-81-SOBER. That's 833-81-SOBER. You can talk with the missions coordinator about treatment options. They can answer any questions for you. All right, one more. We're going to get to Alexis here. Let me tell you about Clean Cause. Uh, Clean Cause is an organic, sparkling, herba mate energy drink. Uh, It's rich in minerals, amino acids, naturally occurring caffeine, uh, there's only 30 calories per serving. Four flavors, peach, raspberry, which is my favorite, lemon, lime, and blackberry. Uh, they taste great. Here's the best part, though. Uh, this is the reason. Uh, of course, the, the drinks are great. Uh, that's a given. But this really is the reason that we uh, continue to partner with these guys. 50% off, uh, or 50%, I'm sorry, of all clean cause drinks support uh, recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. So to date, they've granted over $400,000 in sober living scholarships. Uh, and if you go to cleancause.com, enter the promo code SOBERGUY, you can get 20% off your first order. That's cleancause.com. Enter the promo code SOBERGUY. Shout out to those guys. I'm digging the drinks. I'm rolling through these cases that I have here like crazy. Even my wife loves them uh, and, and they're good stuff and they help support a great cause. So be sure to check them out. All right, Alexis Haynes, welcome to the show. How are you? You. I gotta take you. I gotta take you off mute there. Sorry about that. I, I oh. forgot there. Yes. So how, how's it going? Thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. This is really great. I'm so grateful for our community and for the things that we're doing to help people achieve 
hopefully long lasting sobriety. Yeah, that would be great, right? And we're doing it the good old fashioned cliche one day at a time, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. <laughs> I dig it. Yeah. I know sometimes, uh, I know for me, I can get caught in the, uh, the, the grind of things, the daily grind, start, start thinking about tomorrow and next week and next month and next year, which I think there's nothing wrong with planning. Uh, but at the same time, I know for me that can really jack my brain up and I can start to, uh, worry about things that I can't really control. So staying in that moment, uh, has, has been huge for me. Um, so you've, you, you've been in recovery or you've been sober since about eight years. Is that right? I entered treatment December, 2011, and I thought, you know, okay, clearly heroin is a problem for me, but I'm not an alcoholic. I think I had so many issues around the word alcoholic because my dad was an alcoholic and, um, I just associated that as being like such a dirty, horrible thing because he was, um, pretty abusive and, so I, yeah. So the last time I used heroin is, is, uh, was on December 1st, 2010. I went to treatment after detoxing in jail on December 11th, 2010, but I wasn't really ready. And it was actually whippets on March 8th, 2011. So a couple of months into treatment that really brought me to my knees. And we talk a lot about emotional bottoms in sobriety and that really just brought me to my knees. I had a moment of clarity where I realized that I was totally swimming against the tide, trying to do things my way, so self-destructive and in a pain pattern that I really didn't want to be in anymore. And so I kind of came to terms with the fact that – um me and drugs don't mix and that the drugs weren't the problem that I was the problem. And so, um, yeah, I, I say that March 8th, 2011 is my sobriety date. Obviously I restarted that because I mean, aside from the fact that I used a substance, I realized that I was still trying to check out and that behavior for me was, something that I, that I had been doing my whole life, like my reality, my home life and my upbringing, all of that was so chaotic. I needed to check out when I was like nine or 10 years old, even before then. But like when I actually started acting on those behaviors was around that time period. So yeah, I just realized like, wow, you're the problem and you need to figure out the solution. So it took me a couple months um, to figure that out. So were you, so were you a runner? Is that a safe thing to say like it? So when you say check out or uh, I know for me having a pretty unpredictable uh, life lifestyle environment growing up, uh, chaotic family. Um, I ran from everything like I was gone. So whether it was wanting to mentally check out or physically just leave, go hang out with, with friends in the neighborhood or whatever. Um, I didn't want to be, uh, in whatever reality that I was in at that time. Is that something that you can relate to growing up? I mean, I was, I would say I was more of like a fighter. Like I definitely have that, um, tenacity in me. Like when, 
my dad would hit me. My sister would blame me because I was the one that was like yelling at him about being such a fuck up, you know? So like, I I would say it's more of like a mental thing of like, I don't want to be in my current reality, right? Like I can't, I can physically be here, but I can't emotionally be here. And so heroin really provided me like the first time I tried opiates, that was game over for me. I had a surgery when I was a preteen or early teen and I tried Vicodin for the first time. You know, I've had a lot of sexual abuse and rape situations. And it was like in that moment, it didn't matter because I was so loaded that I couldn't feel any emotional pain. And so that's why opiates really worked for me is because it didn't matter. Like I could be a part of my crazy, chaotic, dysfunctional family as long as I had something to numb out and take me out of my, my mentally out of my current situation. So for those out there listening, you, you've already described um, in a short period of time, a pretty chaotic upbringing, right? A lot of stuff going on, mm-hmm. abuse, that kind of stuff. Um, there's a lot of people that have suffered from some, some terrible things growing up. Um, and out, even just plain alcoholism, growing up in an alcoholic family, very tough thing as well. Um, how do you get out of the victim mentality? Like how, did, how, how have you mm. began to, bro- to break away from that? And how do you continue uh, to grow in that? Because I don't, I don't think that's something that, that happens, um, uh, obviously not overnight and even over the course of, of years. Um, what, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, um, like I will give you a brief overview real quick. Like my, so my dad was a raging alcoholic. My mom was this like free loving pot smoking hippie, which everyone kind of associates as being like a good thing, but it's not, she had no boundaries. She didn't protect us. She was so chaotic in her own life and so checked out of her own reality that that was just really like a front for her to like cover up her own chaos. My parents divorced when I was three because my dad had an affair. Um, There was so much sexual abuse going on in my household, incest from the time that I was five um, that lasted for several years. And then I was sexually abused by babysitters, by my dad's girlfriend. Um, And then later on raped at 16 and it was just like nonstop chaos, nonstop trauma. And so when I got sober, it was kind of interesting because I would say for the first year of my sobriety, I wasn't really willing to address any of that. Mm. I was just holding on for dear life. I I'm so grateful that I created a community around me immediately that kept me here Um, because I wasn't really, I wasn't really ready to do the emotional work until after the birth of my first daughter. Mm. I had a really traumatic birth experience and it threw me into severe postpartum depression, which brought me into a therapist's office. And then I spent six years in therapy doing the work. So what's worked for me is a combination of things. Um, Radical self-forgiveness and love. I mean, I practice Buddhism now. I always say like, I'm a Buddhist who like loves Jesus. And that's what has worked for me. Um, So radical self-love. So uh, aside from all of the therapy techniques, which have been monumental, and I've done many from EMDR to um, CBT to biofeedback to um, 
transcranial magnetic stimulation to medication to I've tried everything. Right. Um, but what I've really found is that first and foremost time, time is like giving myself the time that I needed to heal was the most important thing. Radical acceptance of where I'm at right now, like in the moment, I think healing from pain is never a linear experience. There's always highs and lows. I'm, I've had a really painful year in this eighth year of sobriety. There's been lots of not physical death, but it feels like physical Mm -hmm. death, like old parts of me dying, which is extremely painful. And I think that, um, techniques too, like reparenting myself, you know, like talking to myself, like how I needed my parents to talk to me was really huge. Um, and then forgiveness, this is what the last year has been for me is forgiveness. There were certain people in my life, um, even after working the 12 steps and I no longer participate in AA anymore. And I'm, but I'm so grateful for what it did for me in those early years of sobriety. Um, working those 12 steps was really huge, but I realized in this last year that I still have some very real resentments. And so I started working with a spiritual coach we were doing emotional freedom technique, tapping and visualization of sending light and love and healing to my abusers. And most people would go, well, why would, why would you ever do that? Like that's the most raping a five-year-old is the most heinous Mm -hmm. thing that you could ever do. Like that's aside from murder, that's horrendous. And, um, but you know, the one thing that I kept hearing is that forgiveness is the wise man's choice. It's for me. It's not for the other person. And so by sending, by doing the visualizations and by saying my mantra, which is um, actually, I believe like an old Hawaiian tradition, it's um, I, I'm sorry, please forgive me thank you. And I love you. And I would just repeat this like over and over and over again, because at the end of the day, we're not responsible for what our abusers have done to us, but we are responsible for what we go and do with our lives and how we take responsibility for our lives. And that's so much easier said than done. And I just want to reiterate the fact that it has been almost nine years of this work even though the first two I wasn't really diving into this I was still setting the stones in place setting that foundation to get to a point where I can do the healing and are we ever really healed from being raped as women I don't think so I don't think that that's something that you ever really heal from I think though that um that there is glory in that pain that that pain can be turned into something powerful and magical. And that's really what I focus on in my story. And, um, and I hope people have that takeaway. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all that. Um, That's it's, I don't know. I'm kind of speechless on some of the stuff that you went through. Um, And it, it hurts to even hear that, that that kind of stuff happens uh, on a regular basis, unfortunately, to not only you, to a lot of other women and and kids out there. Um, You know, do you find in, in sharing uh, your story and being so open and willing to come out that 
because obviously there's there's got to be a part of healing in that for you. I feel like I, I'm I'm having this this vision, this picture of like every time you share your story, like you're chipping away a little bit each time at at the process of healing for you in in order to share it with someone else, and in turn, you're also sharing it as a way of service to help others out there who may have gone, have gone through something or who are actively going through something right now uh, to kind of channel that to them. Hey, there's hope out here. You can get through this. You're, you know, um, I know things are tough right now, but, uh, but you're a survivor. You're, you know, that kind of stuff, that, that kind of motivational support. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is I'm kind of tying two things in here. Is there, is there healing for you in actually sharing your story and being so open about it? And then, as you're sharing that, as you're, as you're offering your own experience up, um, do you find that it's helping other people out there as well? Yeah. So I just, I just finished writing my book. Um, it comes out early December. Thank you. And everyone was like, well, wasn't that like such a therapeutic experience? And the answer is no, (laughs) to be honest, it wasn't, it was almost re-traumatizing sometimes. But the, the, the freedom in claiming my story and making it my own is a very real and very powerful thing. Mm. So reliving these things and talking about them on a regular basis, I don't think necessarily like chips away at and, and moves me closer towards healing. Um, I would say though that claiming my story and owning my story does. And then yeah, the, the real, um, I think for all of us, what we all want to hear is, um, you know, that, that, or what we all want to feel is that connection to other people who can say me too. I think the reason why the me too movement became such a big thing was because women were finally feeling free enough to say this happened to me too. And we can come together and heal from this collectively. Like, and that's the power, right? And so, yes, I get hundreds of, um, if not thousands of messages from people a week on my social platform um, that are sharing their stories with me or talking about their current struggles. And whenever I'm able to help somebody or to just bring them a little bit of relief to say that it is okay and that collectively we can heal from this. I think that, yeah, that brings me, it keeps me focused. It makes me see like the bigger picture when I'm having a hard week and I'm like, Oh, I didn't hit this number or this happened or that happened. It's like, no, what we're doing here and what you're doing and dopey and all of these other amazing platforms that are pushing for, um, you know, for peace, for helping people achieve peace, um, is we're building community. Mm, And as those communities grow, like I feel more and more peaceful, more connected. And I think that that's the most important thing that we're all looking for in this crazy world we live in. You know, you can be standing in the middle of Los Angeles surrounded by thousands of people and feel so lonely. Yeah, And so, by sharing my story and hear, hearing other women that are like, that happened to me too. And um, I just want to say your story impacted me. It's like, okay, now we're building that heart to heart connection and we're building these communities of people who are um, 
collectively healing. And yeah. that's magical. So I know you're married. You have a couple of kids. How did how did your kids change you? Um, we, we talk about parenting on the show sometimes, and I, I do I do a couple other shows. Um, specifically, even last night, we did two topics on parenting, on being a father. Um, I know that changed my life drastically, having my kids. I mean, it just gave me a whole new perspective on life, what to live for, what's important, what's not important. Um, how has that kind of changed you, and what's that like being a mother? Yeah, it's been honestly my greatest honor, and I know that sounds so cliche, but when I met my husband on our very first date, we sat on the beach and we spent hours talking about what we wanted for our lives and for our children. And my husband also comes from a very chaotic family, and his mom committed suicide when he was 14. And so we each said, you know, we want to break the cycle of generational trauma. I mean, if you look back in either of our families, it's just years and years of chaos and dysfunction. And that is no easy task um, by any means. And I've, my kids have been honestly my greatest teachers. So it's funny. Um, I always say this is the perfect example of parenthood. My first daughter I really researched giving birth because I believe and I work as a birth doula now too that birth really matters and the way that we give birth matters. The way we're treated when we give birth matters. All of these things are really important. So I planned for this home birth, water birth. I had the midwife, the support, the whole thing. I had it planned, planned, planned. This is how it was going to go in my head. I felt this from like the second I found out I was pregnant. And so, you know, like a very quiet, you know, like the way that I wanted to bring her in the world was like super relaxed, no yelling, all of this stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm pushing at home and her butt comes out and we rush to the hospital wow. for an emergency C-section. Right. Wow. And that was my first lesson in parenting that you have to surrender and give up, you know, like as much as you want to control every aspect of their life to ensure that they don't experience any trauma, right? Because, and, you know, my husband and I both believe that um, at the root of all addiction is trauma and that that trauma for certain individuals, especially sensitive ones, you know, then we can get into epigenetics and all of that and go down that rabbit hole and we don't have to right now, but <laughs> yeah. that those people are the people that become addicted to drugs. So we wanted to have this like very trauma free upbringing for both of our children. And here I was having an emergency C-section. I've been screaming for hours at this point. I want her out. I'm like, it was just, it was chaotic. And it threw me into postpartum depression and anxiety disorder and all of this stuff. Right. And so, um, but that was kind of my first lesson of, 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 of really like surrendering in parenthood and that you can set the intention. Um, but it's so much more than intention. It's about the repair, right? Trauma is going to happen. Chaos is going to happen in their lives. You know, you do the best in your, their, your immediate home environment to keep it as calm and loving and attached yeah. and supportive as possible, but they're going to go into the real world and experience crazy stuff. And you know, you just do your very best as a parent to give them the tools, the coping tools that they need to go out there and not just survive, but thrive, hopefully. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's good. I, I 
put an episode out last week. It was titled uh, "Why Your Kids Need a Sober Dad," and that was one of the one of the points that I made in there was just me being sober isn't going to necessarily mean that my my kids never try a drink or never try a drug. But what I'm doing is I'm setting the foundation. Number one, too, I'll bring up what you said, too. I'm breaking that generational curse, number one. A lot of people ask me that. What's one of your, you know, your things that you're most proud of? And that's one of them is breaking that generational cycle, mm-hmm. you know, that that I grew up in, you know. Um, but it, it doesn't mean that they're not going to do that. But what it does is it betters the chances. If you look statistically, if you look uh, just from a family uh, point that monkey see monkey do type of thing. I know is one, one old cliche phrase that kept coming up. They're going to do what they see. And so if they see me making the right decisions, going to the gym, when I get home after a long day, instead of going and sitting on the couch and cracking a beer or whatever, they see that stuff. And that is only going to better their chances. Does it mean it's going to eliminate the chances? No, absolutely not. But I'm going to give them the best shot possible in being that role model um, you know, father figure that I can do. And I, I assume the same probably goes for you as a mother. Um, the other thing I wanted to, to mention too, real quick was, um, was just community, the importance of community, the importance of surrounding ourselves with good people, uh, people who build us up, people who speak into our lives, people who have, um, who have a mentality of, of wanting to serve, of wanting to, to, to be the best they can. How, how important has that been to you and your recovery, your family, uh, just community in general? Yeah, just monumental. I mean, when we, since the beginning of times until recently, we really valued community over the individual. And then something shifted. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden we have these societies where we're, we're so, you know, it's a badge of honor to be stressed the badge of honor to do it all on your own, to be able to handle every aspect of life as an individual, right? We see that as thriving, but we never would have been able to survive thousands of years ago against saber-toothed tigers when, um, you know, if we didn't live in communities and have um, support. And so I think that we have really lost that, that art. And I love that about the sober community is that we know Mm. that we're stronger in numbers and we can't do this alone. And so I have a core group of eight friends that I've had since the beginning of my sobriety that I still make a very, um, I, I make it a priority and they do too. Every month we get together at least once, all of us and have like a big dinner where the kids are there and we're there. And, and then we try to do other events too, kid free and all of that. And even though most of us live an hour apart from each other, we value that on Thanksgiving, we get together on, you know what I mean? And so I think that that's really an important thing because when we feel isolated and lonely, we're more likely to want to give up. And so when we have people who are checking in on us, who are, and sometimes you have to be willing to put yourself out there and to say, Hey, something's going on. Like I need extra support right now. Can you help me? That's absolutely our responsibility too. But we need people in our lives that go, yes, what can I do? And then I've also had to figure out the balance because I am that person for so many people and I needed to assess my personal relationships and realize that 
not all of my friends were that way for me too. So, you know, it's like after work on Thursday, I'm going to be in LA. I won't be home. I'll be away from my kids all day. But I have a friend who's in sobriety, who just had a baby, who's dealing with some postpartum issues. And I reached out to her and I said, Hey, let's go. Can I pick up dinner or let's go to dinner? What do you like? How can I support you? And so I'm very much so that person for a lot of people. And now And I do like a lot of work with consciousness and subconsciousness work too. And it's like a lot of that is my own stuff too. Like being able to be open and receptive towards people that wanting to support me. Yeah. yeah, And when I start doing that, it's amazing the way that people just pop up in my life and go, how can I support you? You know, even if it's like I'm doing this big event in LA and I was like, I'm not selling any tickets. I'm not selling any, what's going on with this? And then I realized oh, there's a blockage there. Like, I don't feel worthy of people spending money on these tickets to come to my event. What What is that about? You know, I can't always do free events. I'm going to put on this amazing wellness event and I am going to open up to allowing that abundance to flow into my life and that support to throw in, flow into my life. And then just yesterday I sold five tickets and there you go. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's like amazing how that works when we're so mindful it's, of our patterns too. That's It's crazy that you bring that up because I did, before we started, I always, I always say, you know, hey, I don't really have an agenda. I don't have a lot of questions lined up. Sometimes I'll outline a couple of them. Well, I did, I did outline a couple of them here and, and one of them was just that. I, and, and it's, it, this is, uh, this is kind of what I, I noted down. One of the big things that I've always struggled with myself personally is, is worthiness. And for me, that mm-hmm. came to, um, trying to prove to others that I'm somebody I'm worthy of love. I'm worthy of somebody loving me, loving myself. And and the big one for me that I'm still working through is that I'm, that I will succeed and I'm going to, I'm going to show you, I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to prove to somebody or to whoever, you know, um, that I'm going to win basically in a sense, you know, um, is that an issue for you or with when that kind of ties into work, um, feeling worthy, love. And then I guess, I guess we don't really, I guess we could pull in family to that, but more from a, more from a business perspective, more from making a living, um, doing what you love to do at the same time. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I think it really goes back to our subconscious mind and our programming. So from zero to seven years old, that's when that inner voice is programmed into your head. That inner voice that we all have, what we're Mm. hearing at home is what is in there. So I always encourage parents to talk up to their children. Every night I say to my kids, you are so loved. You are so valuable. You are special. You can achieve anything that you want. The vast majority of people don't have parents that are doing that right we're like overstressed overworked we have generational trauma we have all of the things right so we're not we're not receiving that and so yeah I mean so much of of that work though is going back into that programming and I love Lacey Phillips work she does this um she has this podcast I'm going to blank on the name right now uh expanded I think um but she talks a lot about that 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 programming is our biggest um that th- that's the biggest thing that's holding us back in our lives yeah. and we i think the vast majority of us deal with it you know yeah and so 
going back to the reparenting aspect of things though, and the mindfulness things, when I am consciously breathing throughout the day, when I am being the watcher of my thoughts, it's our, our goal in becoming mindful is not to have no thoughts. It's to be conscious of our thoughts. And so when I'm hearing, I'm not worthy, I should just lower the ticket prices. I should just do it for free. I should give away a hundred seat, all of these things. I have to check myself and go, Hey, what is this? Yeah. And so at that again, is something that I don't know if we, I think we, we can get better on it, but I think that that subconscious programming is still yeah. very real in my life and something that I'm always working on. I, I got to connect you with a buddy of mine, TJ Woodward. He's the creator of conscious recovery. He's been on the podcast mm-hmm. a, a few times. He's a, he's a good, good friend, great dude. But one of the things he talks about so much is unlearning, like how it's so it's like we're mm-hmm. not learning. We're, we need to unlearn these things that we were programmed as children that are ingrained in us in these neuro pathways that we do things subconsciously because of the programming as kids. And he, he's written a couple of books and he, he's a great dude. I'll connect you when we're done because you should totally hook up with them. It's a lot of the stuff that it seems like that you're that you're talking about and that you're working uh, actively in. Um, OK, so. I'll briefly bring this up. You can dive as deep as you want. The bling ring thing. I I know people, they, you know, I don't know how much questions you still get about that. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you even refer to it as that? Is it annoying? I mean, I'm just kind of curious. No, at this point, it's like, I, 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 I assume and expect <laughs> that it's going to be brought up in, yeah. in every single um, interview that I do because, you know, unfortunately that's what, I'm known for because when I, you know, a lot of celebrities have had huge um, missteps, right? Like we often forget them, you know, we don't think of Robert Downey Jr. as an alcoholic who went to jail. We don't think of Bruce Jenner as someone who unfortunately had a really bad accident and killed someone on PCH. We don't think about the fact that Khloe Kardashian had a DUI or that Lindsay Lohan stole stuff from a store that was worth thousands of dollars. We don't think about all of these things, but because my show followed me during my case, um, Mm. that's what I became known for. And then when I got sober, I pretty much disappeared, which was what I needed to do for me because I knew that if I went back into media, I was going to die pretty much. And so it's something that will forever be associated with me and that's okay because it was honestly, um, you know, as horrendous and as sad as the whole situation was, um, I, it saved my life. Mm. And I feel weird saying that sometimes because people are like, oh, I mean, you were a part of Orlando Bloom's burglary and that is the most horrendous thing ever. And it's heartbreaking and such a, such a, a total, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not, it's not, it's, it's the biggest violation. I was about to say validation. The word was not coming. (laughs) It's the biggest violation (laughs) of somebody's, privacy and safety sure. and feeling in their own home. And I, yeah. 
can't even imagine. And I go into great detail about this all in the book, but um, yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions too. A lot of people think that I was involved, that like I was the mastermind of the bling ring. That's not the truth. Um, I just was with Nick Prugo and Rachel Lee one night. Um, they were the kind of, they were the masterminds of the bling ring. They had been robbing houses long before I met them. And yes, I ended up at Orlando Bloom's house one night. And like I said, just such a violation and a really sad and scary situation for all of the victims. But I can't, I don't think, I honestly don't think that had everything not transpired the way that it did, that I would have gone sober and I probably would have died. And then I wouldn't have been doing the work that I that I'm doing today. Obviously we talked about like the podcasts that I'm doing. I talked about the social outreach that I do on a regular basis. Um, I do events at our treatment center, Aloe house. We have a treatment center where we help, we've helped thousands of people get sober. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we do, you know, uh, safe and not safe injection sites. Um, Narcan training events and all of these things that we're doing to help save lives. Like none of this would have happened had all of that not transpired the way that it did. And so it's kind of this really challenging thing to talk about because I obviously have remorse and I feel really horrible, you know, and I went and I did my time and served time for that. But um, had it all not transpired the way that it did, like I wouldn't be here. Yeah. And so it's kind of this like weird dichotomy issue. Yeah. I don't know. No, totally. I could, <laughs> I, I can see that and, and I can, I can relate to that in my own, um, you know, mess ups or things that I've done that I'm not proud of or that I regret. Um, or even just, even just the way that, uh, I was raised having forgiveness, uh, you know, to, to people that, that I felt like hurt me or wronged me. Um, in that, that has allowed like I be, I know what you're saying because you you gain appreciation for the journey that you've been on, mm-hmm. not because you're proud of what you did, but because it you learned along the way, you know something what not to do, how you know how not to be, and that's what brought you here today. So I mean, I think that's a that's exactly. a very valid valid point. I mean, I was a teenager. I I was just so I was just such a traumatized person and I was a teenager and none of these things are can make it better. Yeah. But I wouldn't have had the amount of healing that I've had and I want nothing but healing for all everybody deserves healing, right? My even my co-defendants, they've served their time and I want nothing more than healing. We should all want healing it for every person that ever has issues or goes into prison because that's how we create people who aren't reoffenders, right? Yeah, like <laughs> if we want people to get better, they have to heal. And that's how we create like a more peaceful world. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what, <laughs> that's, uh, do that's you, kind of how I feel about that. Do you still, uh, are in contact with any of them with any of the friends or people at the time? Yeah, so I only really knew Nick Prugo. I didn't know any of the other co-defendants um, very well outside of the fact that we had this case together. Yeah. And I don't have any contact. Um, Rachel Lee is uh, happens to be, and this was really weird. I 
went and saw a brand new hairdresser in LA and she was his assistant, which was very awkward and very weird. Like I showed up for my first haircut and then she was there, but I'm happy for her. Right. Like she, I think she did about like three years. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, most of the victims, I believe got all of their belongings back and she's out here like hustling, trying to create a better cleaner healthier life for herself she put herself through cosmetology school she's just trying to live like a normal life and i'm i'm happy for her yeah we all screw up sometimes (laughs) some of us you know everyone's situation is different it doesn't make it right um you've obviously already admitted to that done done your time done your um you know your part in that and, and you're obviously uh, not proud of it and remorseful for it. I mean, you just, you just said that, um, you know, and so I think that there, there comes a point when it's like, how long, how long do we beat ourselves up um, for the things that we've done? When, when do yeah. we allow ourselves uh, the healing, grace. the grace for, mm-hmm. you know, what, what it is that we're, I'm not that person that I was 10 years ago. You know what I mean? I'm not that yeah. person that I was five years ago. And that's the key to like maintaining sobriety, right? Because mm. shame cripples us. Like totally. there's a difference between guilt and shame. And I love Brene Brown. I talk about her all the time and I just adore her work and think it's so profound. Like guilt is the idea of like, I did something bad, but I'm not a bad person and I feel bad about it. Yeah. Shame is the idea that I did something bad and I am a bad person and reliving that tape over and over and over again of everything that the media was saying about me and everything that, that the way, because the way that I was portrayed and granted I was not a very likable person back then. Um, but even more so because of editing and news articles and things that were going yeah. ar- around and some things that had been fabricated, like, there was an amplified amount of hate, right, on me. And so you begin to believe the things that you're told about yourself. Mm. And especially like public humiliation, you know, it's, it's really hard to walk away from that and to not believe the things that everybody is saying about you. Um, and so that's really, that's really hard work to kind of uncover and work and and begin to move through um and again like because I talk about this all the time I feel like if we want to have people get better and not reoffend and get on the path of long-term sobriety we have to stop shaming them mm-hmm. and we have to help them move out of their own shame pattern because yeah. If you're believing these negative thoughts about yourself all the time, then it's like, what's to stop me from going back and doing another horrible thing? Because if I just believe that I'm a piece of shit that does horrible things all the time, then I'm going to continue to be a piece of shit that does horrible things all the time. True. True. It's a good way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When I think, though, too, just to just to kind of sum that up, too, there's always going to be haters like there's always going to be no matter how good we do, no matter how much we improve no matter how great we 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 want to try to change there's always going to be people no matter what you know level we're at that want to see us fail and uh, whether it's with sobriety with um no matter what it is you know and i think that's something that um that we just have to learn uh, to deal i i love the the saying i i can't remember where i heard this if it was in a meeting or somewhere but and it's it's kind of cliche but it does 
come up every now and again, but what other people think of me is none of my business. I love that mm -hmm. line because it's just like, I can't control how you think. I can't control what you say. I, there's nothing I can do about it. And the moment that I start letting that affect me, that's my problem. And I've allowed you to win in that aspect. So, absolutely. You know. Yeah, absolutely. So if we, if we wrap this thing up, um, what, uh, so, or, or first of all, too, let me just say thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing a little bit, being so open. Um, you know, I know that uh, I know that there are many people out there listening who are going to hear something. Maybe it's just one thing that helps them today. So, so thank you for that. First of all, um, what what can you leave uh, those out there listening with? today that that might encourage them someone who's struggling right now maybe somebody who's got a a, a kid who's out there struggling uh what would you mm -hmm. say to someone out there you know I, after my a total you know experience and i look back on my life i really do think like if i can do it you can do it too i mean it is absolutely possible. We do recover. And um, there are people who care about you and love you and want to help. And I always tell people on my social media, like, I love you. Because I do. I do. Yeah, I good. love you. And I care about you. And I care about us as a collective. And I believe that, um, that that's what really initiates change. We can bitch and complain about politics and our government and the world and our outside conditions and all of these things. But the change happens inside and I'm happy to be there for people who are wanting to take um, either their sobriety farther into a deeper place or if they're just wanting to get on the road or they're curious about what this road even looks like. Yeah. And you know, I'm just, I'm so grateful for you. And like I said, others in our community who are being vocal because it's not easy, especially when you get sober in the rooms. Anonymity is something that's talked about on a regular basis that um, is really promoted. And it's, it's hard when you make that decision to be very vocal and outspoken yeah. about sobriety and all of that. And you're, you're literally putting your whole life out there for people to judge. Totally. And so I'm just really grateful for you and for the work that you're doing. And yeah, I would just want people to know that, like I said, we can and do recover. Right on. Where can folks uh, reach out to you at? Uh, you mentioned the book, book comes out in December. Is that right? Yeah. So um, the book comes out December 3rd. We are doing that large community afternoon of wellness event December 14th. You can find tickets to that on my um, Instagram. You can follow me on Instagram if you want. It's it's Alexis Haynes um, or on my podcast page, which is at Recovering From Reality. And you can visit us at recoveringfromreality.com and listen wherever podcasts are. <laughs> right on. Yeah, I'll put the, I, I think I already did add those. Yeah, I, I added your uh, links in here to Twitter, Instagram, and recoveringfromreality.com. Okay. So you can find everything there for those out there listening in the show notes. Uh, Alexis, one more time. Thank you again. I appreciate you. Uh, share the podcast with a friend. Check us out at thatsoberguy.com. Uh, you can connect with us at Real That Sober Guy on Instagram, at Shane Raymer on Twitter. Peace, love, and respect, my friends. I love you guys. Uh, keep up the good fight out there. And uh, if no one's told you they love you today, hey, me and Alexis love you. So keep it up out there. That's right. All right. <laughs>